Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Bowls with the Bard. My name is Cakes. I am your host. Today, we are continuing our season about the problem plays with a bonus episode. I realized about halfway through this season that I had intended to and then forgot to include Titus Andronicus in this wonderful conversation about problem plays. Titus Andronicus, uh, I don't think it's fair to say it's hard to tell whether it's a comedy or a tragedy. I think it, it sits pretty solidly in that tragedy camp, but I do think that it presents a lot of problems when we try to produce it in 2023. So to help us kind of untangle that, we have two new guests to the podcast with us who just finished producing this play. So I am very excited to hear their thoughts about it. First, we have Mur Larson. Mur, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Oh, me first. Oh, no. <laughs> I realized I did not prepare an intro. I was like, I will be not sober by the time I'm introducing myself. I, along with Megan, run speculative drama in Portland, Oregon. And I came to theater um, as a, I'm a musician and songwriter. And I came to theater kind of from the music side of things, but have been uh, in love with Shakespeare's words for like, since I could read. I don't know, what are the things that I say? <laughs> I was is, not, I... <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts of the podcast because people never know what to say about themselves. Last season, I actually like had people write bios and then I would introduce them separately from the rest of the podcast specifically because of this. So we might go back to doing that. We'll see. But I, I think that was a lovely introduction. I I very much enjoy following all of your musical adventures on uh, TikTok and was just watching a speculative drama performance of Titus Andronicus right before we got on this call um, and very much enjoy the work both of you produce. Megan, well, Let's say your first, your full name. <laughs> we have Megan Sky Hale as our second guest with us today. Megan, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I have the unfair advantage over Mur of um, <laughs> being the one who usually gives the spiel when we're out at things and being an MC. Uh, so we'll see if I can uh, be not sober and not flub it. So I am a classically trained actor. I studied Shakespeare in drama school and um, other theater in undergrad. And I sort of accidentally started a theater company called Speculative Drama about eight years ago. And at a certain point, I roped Murr <laughs> into doing theater from music through their love of Shakespeare. And we produce two plays a year. And one of them is always an immersive but not interactive Shakespeare show. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. It was, I, I mean, even from a like digital, not watching the show live standpoint, it's, it was really cool to watch the elements y'all had in like the corner of the screen for Titus Andronicus. So cool. The work y'all do is really amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, we stumbled into that idea sort of by accident and um, finding ways to make it feel like theater and feel immersive when you're online is hard <laughs> yeah yeah I imagine but I think you guys have found a successful way of doing so so thank you well before we dive too deep into talking about Titus I am going to smoke a little bit and y'all are welcome to indulge in whatever you feel like indulging in <laughs> I heard we were supposed to have bowls so I brought <laughs> a bowl of cocktail I love it. In the Campbell's chicken noodle soup bowl. I love it. It's so cute. I pre-gamed with some tincture, but I also have absinthe in a tiny bowl. So. Ooh, what a combo. <laughs> mm -hmm. y'all we are nice and lit and 
as ready as you can be to talk about Titus Andronicus. I think before we get started, it would be fair to give a bit of a content warning. This play, even compared to some of the like problematic stuff we've talked about this season, it's it's got some heavy stuff. It's got some some sexual assault and some real graphic violence. So if that's something that's going to disturb you, please be aware moving forward and make your decisions wisely. With that, let's talk about the graphic violence. Um, <laughs> this play has what I consider to be like the most grotesque and graphic and extreme piece of violence in the entire Shakespeare canon. And it happens at about minute 40 of like a two and a half hour play. So it's pretty early on. So my first question for y'all is like, how do you handle a moment like that and the consequences of it without completely losing your audience super early in the production? Mm -hmm. Megan, do you want to get us started with that? Sure. Well, I worked on the show as an actor, but also Mer and I do all of the things, all of the things <laughs> for our shows. Uh, so I was also acting as intimacy coordinator with the consent of the cast. And um, one of the things that was really important to us right from the beginning was that it is not shown, not even like a part of it or an intimation of it. There's sinisterness and there's some physical intimacy between those characters as they're leaving the scene just prior but that none of the actual act is shown and none of the power is lost from the person who it happens to mm -hmm. even while they're being removed and sort of taken off stage um and that it's never portrayed even though there's you know Chiron the younger brother in this there is an argument for him just not understanding what love is and in his lines there's support for him really thinking he loves this person that he does this horrible horrible act to um for those who are not familiar the person that we're referring to Lavinia gets her hands and tongue removed and is raped in the scene in the offstage scene in the scene that is spoken about and we were like it needs to never be sexy mm. like nothing about the power involved, nothing about the dynamics even Chiron's misplaced thoughts of love cannot come across to the audience as sexy and then for me as a as a designer choosing a way that looks both gruesome and stylized so that we weren't tapping into people's actual trauma so that if they were going to move forward with the play they could see it be horrified be upset by it but we're not being actively harmed by the imagery so like walking that line between being horror and accepting the gruesomeness, but not making it look realistic was important to us. Hmm. Hmm. I love that our, our production really borrowed a lot from Hellraiser and the sort of Clive Barker mythology in the visual aesthetics and also some of the conceptual stuff. And so one of the things we got to do with the Zoom was to sort of peer into that moment a little bit and again, trying to do it in this way that's stylized, but never sexy. And that really accents the, I think that the horror in her experience of the horror of something horrible happening to you where like time slows down. And the nice thing about the Zoom, the sort of picture in picture thing was we were able to do this thing, this more sort of cinematic thing in this theatrical moment. Yeah, I... I enjoyed like the two things that really stood out to me in y'all's production was like you had the little kind of offstage corner cam and Demetrius and Chiron were really just like one at a time like putting a finger down on Lavinia and it had just like a, a very creepy effect to it that it was exactly what you said it was nicely stylized but there was nothing attractive or too like atrocious about mm -hmm. what was going on with it mm -hmm. and and then the other thing that really stood out to me was the moment when she pulled like blood out of her mouth and again it was clearly not actually 
blood or her tongue or the actual thing but like you got the gist you got the horror <laughs> it was enough yeah i i thought that was beautifully well done and i think you're right on the money that like there has to be a stylization to it rather than like a literal take on what is happening partially the literalness is also difficult because they purposefully like if you really dig deep into the moment they would have to purposefully heal her a little in mm -hmm. order for her to not die before she reaches her uncle and there's something a little horrific about that that can either be taken advantage of or kind of ignored and I think in what you maybe can't see in the video is that that's gauze coming out of her mouth. Ooh. So the idea of like having like packing her wounds. And yeah, like, yeah. And having like gone against their mother to ensure that she lives, even if they think she died wandering in the forest, you know, and her, her existing as a surprise to them later, they want her to live long enough to tease her in those horrible, horrible lines afterwards. So sort of balancing that and using that as a jumping off point for the visual stuff. I mean, it's, Murr talked a lot in the show about the aftermath, uh, the later aftermath of like grappling with sudden disability, which I think is not always looked at in the context of the show that there's not just like, <laughs> there's not just the immediate aftermath, but now she is, has had an, an event, a sudden event that now her life is as a person with a disability. And right now with long COVID and things like that, it felt very, it so kind of surprised us at how timely it was and how much we ended up grappling with that idea. And that was one of the main things actually that I wanted to look at in the play was rather than Lavinia as this like character who then becomes this sort of puppet in the rest of the play, you know, she doesn't have lines. She's in all of these scenes to think about like, okay, this is a person who now doesn't have hands, can't speak, but is still a member of the family, still wants to participate in, you know, family business of revenge or whatever. <laughs> um, but but the, that idea of like, sort of going through the, the, the stages of grief about your own body and like what it means to find agency for yourself in this body that's changed. Yeah, and I mean, even hopping on top of that, like, what does it mean to be a family member of somebody who is going through something like that? And what does it mean to, to witness your own family watching it happen to you, I feel like mm -hmm. is even yeah. an interesting thing to examine. Like, wow. And her relationship with Marcus and... Lucius is really interesting and in the original young Lucius too most people cut we cut it's kids are complicated on yeah. especially <laughs> in a horror show you're like here you go kid just be in the middle of like the bloodiest Shakespeare show ever bye um I wanted to say something else about not not having Lavinia's sexual assault and mutilation like take people out of the play that I think for me there's like from a directing standpoint, it was like, how much can we not do the opposite of a jump scare, right? Like spread out the moment. There's this mm -hmm. line in the first act where Saturninus like, out of nowhere accuses Bastianus of rape for oh. marrying Lavinia. And, and it was like, it was like, that's a hard, that's a difficult word to hear on stage anyway. And it was like, no, for this one, like we need to hear it. We need to have that be a moment like a loud moment that the audience hears to be like, oh, we're getting used to the idea of that in this room before it happens. So it isn't just like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I noted that as, as I was watching, I felt like I was like, oh, I'm waiting for like the moment that this is gonna happen. And instead I feel like I'm having like slow reveals of how this is happening, like spread over the course of, 15 or 20 minutes in the play and that does make it a little bit easier to stomach like I feel like, like it internal gives you time content to, warning 
Yeah, I feel like it gives you time to process it while it's still, because it's like, it's horrifying no matter what, you know? Yes. And the thing that we realized is like, is like, we don't need to surprise people with it. Like, here's the mic drop of everything going on that it was like, if you trickle that in, it's just as bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, while we are on the topic of violence, this moment is certainly not the only moment of violence in this play. It is... Uh, Heavy, heavy showers of uh, violence sprinkled throughout the entire play. So, so the uh, third of many. Yes. <laughs> I almost uh, said first, and then I was like, wait, no. Darkness no. kills his own kid. No. There's like a larvas. Like <laughs> it's, yep. it's, it's bad. <laughs> so with that in mind, like, how do you approach that in the rehearsal room to keep things feeling safe? for the people that you're working with. Mur, do you want to start with that? Sure. We had we had a couple of of sort of basic ground rules fences around things of like around not having the conversation in the room be about personal experiences. I think the other thing is we went into this play knowing all of the really really complicated and difficult topics in it and being really upfront with people about wanting to take care in the room and about, you know, as things come up, making sure that we're checking in. The first few times that we were doing those scenes and also Aaron's scenes that really deal with the sort of racism, xenophobia, we checked in at the beginning and in the middle of rehearsal and at the end of rehearsal to really just kind of see how people are feeling about things see what things are coming up in the room. Yeah, I think Megan can kind of speak more to. Well, one, one of the things that we have as a company that's sort of a standing policy is that um, we treat emotional safety just like physical safety. So if uh, at any moment, you know, like if you like cut your finger and you gotta go get a Band-Aid and then you're like, oh, actually this is kind of deep. I'm gonna like go to the hospital, you know, like you just go, right? You just go, oh, something happened. And you just walk out of the room and you text the stage manager and you're like, I'm going to the hospital or whatever. And so we have a policy that that's the same for if you get overwhelmed or if something is too much that you, anyone has the right to stop at any moment for any reason and then, if they need to leave, they also don't have to tell us. They can just leave and then text and be like, hey, I'll be back in five or oops, I won't. I'm going to come back something tomorrow. That I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that gives a nice base. I mean, that's like, you know, the floor, but it's, <laughs> it is the floor. There's at least a floor. Yeah. It, it's a floor that like, a, a, unfortunately, a vast majority of theater companies don't even build. So I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think coming to things as an actor and like not intending to create a theater company, we just decided to put together all the parts about making shows that we wanted. And that was something that both of us, that that's important to both of us as neurodivergent creators with feelings. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think when when looking at all of the violence, Murr had a really good structure for checking in at certain times about it while building it. And then because of the limited space, partially, but also just philosophically, I find things that tell you that violence is happening, mm. but that are not again, too realistic that walk that line between realistic and not realistic as more interesting as mm -hmm. a theater maker. Um, and I think that this show really leaned into that, that, you know, for safety reasons, we can't have a huge all out brawl in the middle of a room that's only a thousand square feet and the audience is two feet from the actors. You know, we even talked about like the moment when I died you know like don't don't pull back this direction you have to pull back this direction because you don't want an audience member thinking you're going to elbow them in the face even if you're not going to um but i think that those constraints really create a system for making violence that is not emotionally dangerous to the actor mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the subject matter is but that everyone can approach from whichever side 
and type of stylization works for them. And one of the actors actually brought in an idea for one of the fights and was like, actually, I chatted with my fellow actor and they really like, they and I both feel safe. Can I do like a chokehold and a lift? And I was like, cool, here's how we could do that safely. And he was like, I actually feel better about this because I'm not feeling like I'm gonna elbow somebody and I'm not like flailing a sword around and it feels more menacing. Um, so a lot of slow moments where you know what's gonna happen, like the idea of like watching something happen in slow motion and I think breeds and with violence like this, it happens so often throughout the play and creating a sense in the audience that they feel like they could stop it if they had the magic word, oh. but they can't, Ooh, I, I think that. is more interesting than the over the top, just like sensory overload of just like fight after fight after fight. That really makes the, the tragedy so much more tragic too. It's like, <laughs> it's like the haunted house thing of like, don't go in the door. Why is nobody telling you not to go in that door? <laughs> Well, and you've got kind of two choices with Titus, right? You can go Grand Guignol, like uh, Evil Dead, and that is a total valid, fun experience. Or you can go slow, slow, creeping horror and focus on the interpersonal relationships, which we wanted to do because I think doesn't get done as much. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, you're totally right. The, like, grand, realistic, crazy fight thing I think is really exciting in Shakespeare in plays like Henry V, where you're going to have two and you're going to pull out the swords and everyone's going to be stoked to see the swords for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and you don't ever actually in those plays generally see like the consequences of that violence. You just kind of get to see the epic violence. And then it's like, well, we'll talk about how many people died in this war a little bit later but like this play you see the consequences on stage all the time like almost every time that there is violence mm -hmm. so yeah I think you're right it's it is almost more effective for the audience to see something unexpected there than it is for them to have to consistently see the like gore and I think like if you don't go for that extra gore, there isn't a need to like one up yourself every time. As the play goes on. Yeah. You've got to kind of choose. I, I mean, I have like, it's for better or worse, I have some like stupid, strong opinions about things like that, like that, some hot takes. <laughs> but I'm like, <laughs> like yelling, I feel like you get to earn one or two of those, right? Or at a max three because you get a build. But like, you can't you can't build forever or the audience gets exhausted. So like, where are those moments? If we were to do it again and be like, okay, there's gonna be big gore moments. I feel like you kind of have to choose where mm -hmm. they actually are and let the rest of the violence almost feel offhand because of a violent mm. culture. Totally. Because mm. so much of the culture in Titus is violent as well, right? Like nobody really kind of they're like, hey, it's not cool that you just killed your son, but they're also not really, like two minutes later, no one cares. Yeah. yeah, it's not even an outlandish suggestion to be like, hey, why don't you chop off your own hand? Like, uh, right. nobody's yeah, okay. like, wait, did they really should you do that? it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's real. And I think that's a great like transition point into my next question, which is about these characters themselves who like really should be villains like they a lot of these characters probably should be categorized with like Iago and Richard III and the people that we constantly talk about as villains but somehow some way Shakespeare has written this incredibly violent play where characters do worse shit than most characters in the canon and every time I see or read this play, I walk away and I'm like, man, I love these guys. <laughs> They're great. Like, I just love these characters so much. There's something about them that feels incredibly human, despite everything that happens in the play. And I, I know, I mean, we talked about Oswald the Enswell last week. Yeah. Shakespeare is very capable of writing unlikable characters. 
if he wants to write an unlikable character so i'm i'm curious like how do y'all think Shakespeare has accomplished this feat of like writing monstrous characters that you feel for? Megan, do you want to start with that? Yeah. Um, having played Tamara, I think that there's sort of like two two different like ideas at play here. One is that no one in this play is a good person. And I think that that is interesting. Like there's no, even... Marcus is the closest thing to a good person, but he allows a lot of things to slide because he doesn't want, he cannot handle confrontation. But even Lavinia and Bastianus, you're like, I, in my mind, am like, oh yeah, these horrible things happen to them and they don't deserve it. And then we read again and I was doing the play and I was like, oh my God, yeah, they are vile in that scene with Tamara. They are bigoted and they're like, hey, no one's looking. So now we get, we just set them up as the heroes one scene before. And then they're like, now that no one's looking, we're just going to be genuinely horrible. And I think there's something about that that makes you be able to be like, okay, well, if no one is a good person and no one has remorse about not being a good person, like, what do, do we find interesting about them? And I think ultimately almost everyone in this play does what they do out of love. And I don't know about Titus. Titus is just kind of like a narcissist in my opinion, (laughs) but he's still so entertaining, but like, and he is set up as like the most wronged, right? So because he's the most wronged, even though he's kind of like this, I feel like him and Prospero could like have beers and be the worst dads together. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was going to say like have a dad off. Bad dad, bad dad club. But like everyone is kind of justified. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that because the reasons why they do all of these horrible things come from really human places makes them sort of likable. And the fact that they don't, the ones who are the worst don't apologize for it also kind of puts them in this likable place. Like even Demetrius who like, I hate, I hate him (laughs) because he is legitimately like a sociopath. He's like the kid that was definitely like killing cats. Like, and his mom, in my opinion is like, Oh, now we're not where I know how to control this. (laughs) Um, even he, like, he's so unremorseful and so, like, witty and, like, enjoying himself in all of the horrible things. There's a little bit of, like, a cathartic freedom in being, like, well, I would never do terrible things, but you're having so much fun. <laughs> I don't know, Mer. I love how you and I, like, I think we make a good team because we come from such, like, like, dovetailing opposite ends of the spectrum. For me, I'm, like, I'm, like, you're right like all these characters are terrible there's nobody there's nobody that you can say is a good person in this play um i'm like yeah like marcus maybe comes the closest but like has this moment of like of like i wish i could just spend all of my copious amounts of money to make this go away that you're like oh right you're a politician and like a billionaire you just want to get on your yacht and sail away from all this like screw you marcus you're the worst um like nobody's nobody's good for me, I'm like, everybody in this play, they're terrible right in front of you and somebody loves them and you see it. Oh hmm. my God, that's so nice. So then you <laughs> also love them because you see. Yeah, or you're just able to empathize mm-hmm. with the ways in which, you know, like Demetrius, it's like, it's like, oh, and like you're fighting with Chiron, but then you make up and it's like, oh, now you genuinely like see each other and are in this this calamitous you know prisoners of war suddenly set free as second-class citizens in this foreign place free of no went from being a prince to having no power like oh i get you all right you're awful but like oh oh i mean that's your mom loves so you real. <laughs> your mom loves you i want them i want all three of them to have like my at least my mom loves me t-shirts now and like Aaron and Tamara's love is so real. And I yeah. think on some level, as much as they hate each other, Saturninus's grief about Bassianus is so real mm-hmm. that like all of the, yeah, people love each other. Yeah. And so 
it kind of points out that there's something lovable. There's something oh, and, human in there. And even if that love turns into this, you know, it's, it's this like this revenge, revenge, revenge tragedy, right? And even if that love turns, turns maladaptive in that way, it's like all of the revenge, all of the bloodshed happens for love in a super misguided way. But it's like, oh, I loved my son and you killed him. I will move heaven and earth to get you back, you know? Oh, gosh, when you look at like all of that <laughs> in the context of this play, it makes like when you hate somebody for like the small little petty things seem like so dumb. So you're like, <laughs> oh, somebody else loves them. <laughs> they, just, they just did the little thing. They didn't cut off someone's hands. <laughs> And force their mom to eat them in a pie. Yeah, right. Well, uh, speaking of pie, <laughs> let's talk about this pie. Um, so this play is very famous for its act five pie scene. We we get two boys baked into a pie and their mother is forced to eat them um, without knowing she's doing so until she is mid-eating. And I am curious about this moment from the perspective of people who have just produced it, because I feel like knowing the play, if I'm going in, I'm like, how are they gonna do the pie? I'm like, <laughs> yes. what is the, no, how is do. this moment going to happen? But like, there have to be human beings out there who come and see this play and don't know. So, how do you like keep this moment fresh and exciting? I, I I will say also like for me the audience I'm like I'm always telling people who are not Shakespeare nerds like like the three of us like the best way to get introduced to a play is to go see it right I'm like don't read the play maybe read the synopsis no don't even read the synopsis like like you know what it's about go see the play then go read it and have opinions about, you know, and know that it's just one person's idea of how this might've gone down, you know? So it's really fun. And one of the things that we try, that I try and bring to the rehearsal room all the time is like, for somebody who doesn't know what's gonna happen next, you know, like what happens next? What are the possibilities that then it narrows down to like, this is the thing. For me, the pie scene with Titus, I'm like, this play, unlike a lot of others, where there is sort of choice at the end, oh, do I go into this final duel or not or whatever, I feel like Titus has whittled himself down to like, I need to do the most horrible thing imaginable. Hmm. To get the attention of the gods, to appease the god of revenge, to do justice for everything horrible that's happened to me, whatever, whatever it is that he's like, I need to do the most horrible thing. He makes reference to Procne right before he makes the decision to kill his own daughter after everything she's been through. Like, he's just like, what's, what's the worst on the list? How do I get to the bottom circle of hell? Sign me up for that. <laughs> and so in a way it like, it makes, for me, it makes the pies seem inevitable. Like that once that idea is somehow in his head that it's like, this is the path we're marching towards. <laughs> hmm. I, I love that. Practically speaking, Shakespeare really does you a service. And I, I will not say that Titus is his most well-constructed play that exists. It's very clearly early. There's like, he's working out some things, but it is, there are some things that are really beautiful about it. One of them is that he tells you the pie is going to happen in an extended monologue that you're like, how do you even do this? Once you're like, I'm going to make you into pie. Now I'm going to talk about it for five minutes. And then I'm also still going to tell you every two minutes that I'm making you into a pie. And somebody, I saw somebody do this where they had, they, it was an adaptation and they had inserted uh, Titus reading off a recipe. <laughs> Amazing. In, in place of like, I'm going to grind your bones to dust and then I'm going to make a paste out of that dust. It's like, and then a quarter cup of this and then like this, and then we put it in the oven at 325 for this long. It was, and then, and then he pops back into the Shakespeare at the end of it. It was <laughs> way over the top. It was delightful. But like, so he sets you up a little bit. And I think in a way that makes the audience from that moment be like, how are they going to do the pie? So they have the same experience as those of us 
who are walking into the play with that mm -hmm. idea. Oh, I love which, that. Which creates this beautiful thing of like they're excited and they're anticipatory and also then you get to the logistical how are you going to do the pie um which our space doesn't have room for a table so we had to get kind of weird we we had different things of like do we make a table do we have like a table that becomes part of the room do we have like a you know breakdownable thing and then we landed on this very strange, like surreal, we had already had these time stops in the show where the time stops and the goths have this type of magic that like takes you outside of time. And so we were like, well, what if, what if Chiron and Demetrius are just literally there? And um, so that them as people is never forgotten, mm. which I think is one of the hard parts of that scene because Tamara is left to sell that moment, right? Like everybody knows that it's the kids. Everybody knows that the actor is going to have to take a couple bites, whether they're fake or real or staged or, you know, miming because you're on a proscenium that's a million miles away from the audience. And so you have this literal pie problem on top of the metaphorical pie problem. Like, how do you make a pie? Do you do food props? Because, like, you're doing however many shows. Like, do you want to replace that many food props? People who don't do theater, just so you know, food props are a problem. <laughs> They're a problem. I've eaten so many grapes. Uh, I've eaten so much stale bread that, like, we bought a piece of bread at the beginning of the week, and it's got to last us till the next week because we're only buying one a week. Like, it's... They're a problem. We were very lucky because someone made us these really cool pies that had a little cup inside for mm. pie filling. So there was only about two spoonfuls worth of actual pie, but the whole pie looked real. Okay. Um, and then the other one, when it get it, in ours, it gets you know thrown across the room. So you don't have to worry about cleaning up actual pie when it gets thrown across the room. But I think the interesting thing about that kind of, of anticipation is that it is built into the script for you already. And I think weirdly, it makes the rest of the violence in the scene more shocking before he huh. tells Tamara. So he kills Lavinia and there's this like, you is that over the top? Is that too much? You've already baked some dudes into a pie and they're being eaten. But if the whole audience is going, how is the pie working? Is she eating the pie? Oh <laughs> right. my gosh, she's totally eating the pie. And then all of a sudden, whoa. <laughs> they get to have that same surprise as the characters do when he suddenly kills Lavinia. And I think there's something to that. Yeah. Yeah, on a practical sense, I just feel glad that I have clown training because the the halfway third bite to your mouth, like, oh no. Oh, oh, oh. Oh God, no. <laughs> oh, this is what I've done. You, you kind of have to rely on timing mm -hmm. and then you have to let there be a real soul to it. And I don't, I uh, it was hard. It was one of the hardest things I've done as an actor is to know that people are watching me, know they're waiting for that moment, know I have to deliver some level of, I'm there to deliver the horror, right? It's like in Doctor yeah. Who or like old sci-fi, things are only scary because the tough guy's scared. This moment is only impactful because Tamara is impacted. Yeah. Because you don't get to see the death. You don't get to see the making of the pie. You don't get to see any of that. And so you can forget very easily that she is literally eating her own children until she learns. And then she has to kind of bring you back to it. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, that's a moment where like the whole audience knows what is happening. And you do, like as the actor, you know. <laughs> Yeah. that's what's it's not actually a surprise like I think discovery is the hardest part of being an actor mm -hmm. is like keeping a discovery fresh every night mm -hmm. so yeah wow that's that adds like extra stakes for the actor very I think there's a real gift in Lavinia dying which is weird thing to say but because her only next lines are about that Mm -hmm. And so she's very clearly fixated on that. Yeah. So you can kind of have an abrupt shift of focus when you learn about the pie, mm. which I think is a gift. Because mm. an abrupt shift of focus is easier than like 
getting an inkling or knowing something or trying to pretend like you don't know, you know, like if you're focused on something else, mm-hmm. you don't have to like not know. Mm-hmm. I think you're spot on that for, for all of the ways in which Titus is like an early play and doesn't have some of the sophistication of Shakespeare's later writing. Like that scene is very well constructed in that way. I love that observation that like it brings the audience, it brings the like the newbie audience into the same place as the people who are like, oh, there's a pie scene. That it's like, oh, there's a pie scene. What, how are they going to do it? Everybody's on the same page there. And yeah, that the shock of that moment. Yeah, it's really cool. It gives you time also to like have those, the like the two and a half bites. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think the- everything about Titus's violence in general for me is that thing of like, don't open that door mm-hmm. in, a, in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and in the experience of the audience being like, don't do it. Don't, do, this is gonna be bad. This is gonna be bad. Don't, there, that's your kids. Don't eat that. Oh, you <laughs> ate it. Oh, God. <laughs> that was what made the, the pit scene really fun too, to work on. Mm-hmm. The idea of this, like, for in our production, it was this sort of cosmic rift in time and space. And so it was this idea of like this thing that's just unnatural. And the closer you get to it, the more you just feel like, oh, something feels wrong about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think the other nice thing about kind of the shock of the Lavinia moment in the pie scene is like, you're right, because everybody knows, I think the focus does start to go to like, okay, how do they do pie? And even <laughs> if there is that that back of the brain, like she is eating her own children, Lavinia dying on stage brings it back to the fact that like it's about the children dying yeah Mm -hmm. like inevitably that is what that will be about yeah yeah that's fascinating I'm glad you brought that up (laughs) before we wrap up tonight I have one like final question I love this play I want to see this play on stage more and I think that like people have very valid reasons for not doing it but I would like to provide people with more reasons for doing it so we've we've spoken a lot about like the violence and the things that that can be problems for this play and now I'm kind of interested in what y'all think this play has to offer in 2023 like what can we learn from it or take away from it beyond all of this crazy violence stuff. <laughs> um, Mer, do you want to get us started? I I think of it as, I, I love, I think Megan and I are going to have opposite answers and I love this. I don't know, we'll see. I think of it as a cautionary t- tale against the notion that like, that any one person can protect us. You know, there's this this idea that Titus is like, oh, this is the best warrior we've got. Like this guy's coming back, let's make him emperor. Um, he decides to like be the, the protector of his family. He's like, I'm gonna cut my hand off to save my kids, all this stuff. And it's like, community cares where it's at. And like the Gen Z for change kids on TikTok, <laughs> fucking get it, right? Like that's that's what we're doing in this moment. And And I think that Shakespeare, really is like is like yeah like no no daddy is going to be like the one that fixes the whole world for you like you're either fixing the world together or the world is going to be no one in that play in fact though like everyone thinks that they can just do it like no one is connected to each other they're connected to like one person that they've chosen but like everybody is like i know what's right Mm mm-hmm uh, weirdly except for Aaron yeah who like still has this moment of changing over kind of to that and being like no you know what now this is about me but everything he does up until that moment is to kind of like try to get everybody on the same page or like keep people yeah and if he is about like, each other like hey, thinking about thing Tamara matters, and the kids and the yeah if he is like hey the thing that matters is my my kid being cared for like whether it's by the royalty of Rome or whether it's you know get him safely to the Goths and let him be brought up by the villagers there you know like whatever thing it is like he is a model of community care in a way he's like it's not just me against the world that's going to save my kid having a strong community that's raising the kid is what's going to work and even before that he's like trying to find a an outlet for the boys's violence 
in order to be better for the whole family. Totally, totally. You know, not just yeah, for Tamara, who he clearly loves, but like, and not just for himself, but like for even in a weird way for everybody, right? Like for Rome as well, right? Like you can't, you can't do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, it, yes, in a weirdly opposite, but also <laughs> dovetails nicely. Um, I think for me, this play, it's so much about what is important to your culture and how when you remove that from its culture and it's a it's place where it is allowed to flourish, it becomes toxic. When the Goths are brought into Rome, <laughs> they are, you know, they're treated pretty horribly, but they also like... In our version, we were looking at this Hellraiser metaphor because it was beautifully, visually beautiful, but it was also like remarkably fit that in Hellraiser, the the Cenobites, they Merv was talking when we were you know working on the show, the Cenobites just are violent and grotesque. And in hell, that is the appropriate thing to be. And it works and it is just society. They're and then evil. when it, the violence right. is, is just in there, it's matter of fact, it's just in their nature. Yeah. And then when they come into our world, then it becomes a problem. And that happens with the goths in the show of like their brutality or whatever it is in their culture, their value system doesn't fit with the Roman value system. And also I think a lot about this play in the ways that like, for all that Tamara is not a good person, she is a good mother. And Titus is such a bad father. And so much of it makes me think about the idea of like, what does it mean to be a parent? Like Aaron is a good parent, both to his adopted children and to his actual child for all that he also is a bad person and his society is, you know, being brutal and corrupt. He's a good parent. And the idea is that like, the proper person in society who's the good dad is actually quite terrible at it, ignores his children, talks over Lavinia, even when she can't talk, it makes everything about himself, makes his children are only there to reflect on himself and the difference between like accepting your children for who they are and trying to make them a projection of yourself for as much as like it's on this backdrop of all of this terrible stuff is a really interesting question to me. And the fact that like bringing that question up where nobody is the hero, I think makes us think more deeply about that question because Mm. we're not like, oh, that's the good guy and the good parent. It's like, nobody's a good guy, but some of you are good parents. And not that like, I think anyone in the real world would be a good parent if they were, you know, a murderous, you know, person encouraging, you know, sociopaths and and rapists. No, but like, but like, I think by evening the playing field in a weird way of everybody being a bad person means that you can really kind of dig into those interpersonal relationships and those cultural values and be like, oh, oh yeah, the good guys, they're not so good. And often I think the mistake I see in productions, if I see them, and there are mistakes, is that they try to make the Romans the good guys. Because hmm. I don't think there are any good guys in this play, and that's what's cool about it. Huh. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I, I mean, I think like that's a reflection of life. <laughs> like reality is there are no good guys and bad guys you can't just look at somebody and know <laughs> so and it's dangerous to be like oh the romans they're the good guys aaron's mm-hmm. a villain you know and you're like yeah but also maybe he has reasons <laughs> for being this way uh-huh uh-huh if we all just like tried to understand each other and where we're coming from a little better yeah but- who, who knows? We we might not have to cut off our own hands so much. <laughs> How many pies could we have avoided? <laughs> yes, yes. Awesome. I think that is a great place to wrap up this conversation. Y'all, I am so grateful that you came on the show. I have been waiting forever to talk to both of you. I'm just ecstatic. This was really, really fun. This episode will drop on Tuesday, June 27th. Do either of you have fun projects that you would like to plug coming up? Well, if you're in Portland, we're doing some like guerrilla, semi-unannounced Shakespeare scenes all over town over the next couple of months. 
Okay. Um, and our Titus will stay up so uh, people can watch it there. Um, I don't know, Merv, do you have any? Yeah, I'm working on writing my own show that's a combination of uh, new original music and this sort of theatrical story about uh, a monster who is trying to maybe not be the monster in their own story. Oh, hell yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, if y'all have any like promotional promotional materials for any of those things send them my way and I'll uh, link to them in the show notes yeah uh, I think that is all we have for y'all today so oh, once I more I want to point out to you uh cakes that um not that this needs to make it into the into the episode but uh that Mer and I both wore our Shakespeare shirts today <laughs> oh, in yeah. honor uh I... mine says brave monster I'm still backwards but it's from our our tempest i noticed like halfway through the episode i was like we have text on our shirts i love it <laughs> y'all came from speaking fair. of all's well that ends well that's what i know shirt is from. Our <laughs> shirt from act two scene two of all's well like the, the most obscure shakespeare <laughs> shirt of all time yes yes exactly <laughs> but sometimes you just need to wear a shirt that says oh lord sir because you're like oh my god <laughs> real real we still say it like <laughs> awesome all right i think that wraps us for today thanks y'all if you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Megan, Murr, and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. If you haven't already, or if you're just new to the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps Bulls with the Bard to grow. And that is it, y'all. We are done talking about the problem plays. Season two has come to a close. You can, however, tune in next week as we will have a very exciting announcement regarding what is coming next for Bulls with the Bard. And to give you a little hint, it has nothing to do with a podcast, but it has everything to do with Stone Shakespeare. I am very excited to share that news with you, but until then, bye all. A thousand, thousand sighs to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover, never find my grave to weep there.